This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. LBSL, a rare genetic disorder that affects the brain and spinal cord, was first identified in 2004. While there are no treatments available today, researchers are working to understand the condition and develop therapies. One ongoing study at Kennedy Krieger Institute is using digital health technologies to remotely test people with the condition and provide a roadmap towards a therapy. We spoke to Ali Fatimi, director of the Mosier Center for Leukodystrophies at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, about the study, his use of digital health technologies, and their potential to transform the way researchers conduct clinical trials. Ali, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about Kennedy Krieger Institute, LBSL, and your work to use digital health technologies to improve care of patients. Let's start with LBSL. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it, how rare is it, and how does it progress? Sure. So LBSL stands uh, for a quite long name. It's uh, leukoencephalopathy with brainstem and spinal cord involvement and lactate elevation. It's probably one of the longest uh, names you've ever heard of of a disease. Um, and uh, pretty much it is what the title of it says. It's a disease that affects the brain and the spinal cord, and it affects a particular part of the brain and the spinal cord called the white matter. That's uh, where basically all the cables are, the connections between the different nerve cells. Uh, it's a genetic disease, um, and it's caused by changes in a gene uh, that is responsible for the synthesis or production of our body's proteins. And uh, it's a quite uh, complex disorder where we have only limited insight as to why changes in this gene are um, presenting very specifically with a disease that affects the nervous system and pretty much spares the rest of our body. Um, and it's an extremely rare disorder. Uh, we do not know how frequent it is. Uh, it was just described uh, a little bit about, uh, over uh, 10 years ago. I think about uh, um, um, 13 years ago was when the first uh, description came out. Um, uh, it was basically a, a group of seven patients that were first described um, by a professor in the Netherlands. Um, and since then, we know of roughly about 100 patients or a little less than that across the world. 
Um, it could be that it's more common than we think and that many of these patients are either not having severe symptoms or are misdiagnosed as having something else. Um, I think that uh, a number of these patients could clinically look like somebody who has multiple sclerosis or uh, spinal cord conditions and um, and unless you know you have seen this disorder and think about the genes uh, you as a regular physician or even a neurologist are not going to think about this disorder or not even know about this disorder so we we don't truly know how frequent this disease is it could be a lot more prevalent that's not uncommon for rare genetic diseases that they initially appear exceptionally rare and then as we start learning more about them and scanning bigger populations and the testing for uh, for the, 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 the diseases become cheaper, that we realize that the disease is actually more prevalent than we thought. But, uh, you know, our guess is that it's, at, you know, at least um, probably somewhere in one in a million, it may be as, as, as common as like one in a hundred thousand but we don't think that it's more common than that, just based on sort of the number of patients that we are aware of um, across the United States and, and the world. What's the prognosis today for someone with LBSL, and are there treatments available? So the given that we have a limited understanding about this disorder, and this has been just recently described, uh, we don't know the full prognostic range of this disease. We actually don't know the full clinical range of this disease. What we are learning is that initially it was felt to be a, a, a disorder of early childhood where symptoms would start in uh, late infancy or during toddler years. And um, now we are seeing patients who have this disease and don't start having symptoms until early or even mid-adulthood. Um, and on the other end, now there are some individuals that are born and are severely symptomatic right at birth, where it appears that the disease onset really actually started before birth. And, and so there is a quite different range when we look at this uh, disease. And so while uh, those individuals who start in, in adulthood seem to have a slow progressive course that still gets worse over time, but it may be over decades, these very early sort of neonatal slash early infantile uh, form of the disease seems to be quite severe, and we have lost a couple of patients within the first couple of years of life uh, due to the severity of the disease. They are very delayed. They have severe uh, intractable epilepsy and 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 um, and basically don't gain any function. So there is really a range here, and we're still understanding. I think the ballpark of the patients that we know of are still falling under that initial. Uh, uh, sort of pattern of disease where it starts in the toddler years or late infancy. And those kids, it seems that it's a slowly progressive disorder. So they end up, as far as we know, typically uh, needing assistance such as a, you know, a cane or or a walker in their teenage years and then often end up uh, in a wheelchair in their early adulthood. Um, we know of a couple of these patients that had this sort of early onset uh, or, or this childhood onset uh, form that are now in their 40s and 50s, and they are in a wheelchair, but cognitively seem to be pretty intact still. In fact, are you know both of the patients that I know who are who had this you know early childhood presentation and now middle-aged adults are are, are uh, lawyers and uh, you know functioning professionally quite well. 
but have a physical disability that affects primarily their, their lower extremities and, and some, some level of hand function. What is Kennedy Krieger Institute, and how does it figure into the world of leukodystrophies? So the Kennedy Krieger Institute is a, is actually a, a very special place. It's a it's a place that is entirely devoted to enhancing the potential and, and and enhancing the quality of life of children with disabilities. And then we have been around now for several decades, and it's really a three prong arm. We have an we have an arm of clinical care. Uh, where we see a large number of patients in, in many different programs, you know, ranging from brain injury to autism to cerebral palsy to uh, ADHD to, you know, these rare genetic diseases. Um, and uh, then we have a, a research program. Our research is entirely focused on basically trying to improve the lives of these individuals. Um, and it's a clinical research, basic research uh, translational research, um, and then we have a pretty large educational program, uh, both a professional education. Uh, we have over a thousand professional trainees here, you know, ranging from uh, college students to graduate students to postdoctoral fellows, residents, uh, uh, psychologists in training, and so on and so on. And then we have a very large school program for individuals with special needs, um, and that is now my understanding is we are about. 600 uh, or somewhere around 600 uh, uh, students uh, between K and and basically grade 12. Um, And we have several schools now across the state of Maryland. Um, So it's not just in Baltimore, but the school system is is spread out throughout the state. And so um, we had um, a a former, um, one of the former presidents of the institute between, I think, 1976 and 1988 was Dr. Hugo Moser, who came down uh, from Boston, from Harvard, and um, he already uh, he was a neurologist with a great focus on genetic diseases that affect the brain. That was sort of his expertise at that time, and he had already gotten interested in this rare group of diseases that uh, we call leukodystrophies, that are basically genetic diseases affecting the brain's white matter. And and so he uh, when he came down here, that sort of that research program moved with him down here, and uh, we essentially have one of the largest uh, clinical programs and also research programs now in the leukodystrophies. Uh, we, we see several hundreds of patients with, with look, different leukodystrophies here, um, and that has been sort of his legacy. So, um, you know, a few years ago, and, and, you know, he passed away in, I think, 2007, and a few years ago we basically started the Moja Center um, to, to continue his legacy. I'm one of his former trainees, uh, so are many other people who are here. And and so we've been sort of always sort of dealing with this category of diseases. Um, this is nothing new for us. This has been going on for several decades here. Um, but of course now we have the advantage of having having technology that we didn't have just a few years ago that we can utilize to diagnose these diseases better and and to start working on treatments. As you mentioned, little's known about the condition today. What's the thrust of your clinical research? What what are you trying to get at? We are trying to understand uh, the, some of the things that I just touched on. The first thing is what is what is the range of this disease? You know, how bad can it get? What are the mildest forms? Uh, so we are trying to capture data uh, from every patient that is out there. And uh, you know, the the McGinn's and the the, the Cure for Ellie Foundation has been helping us. Uh, because they are in contact with uh, through Facebook and other social sites, you know, with, with many many of these patients, uh, and so we're trying to figure out 
if we can if we can basically uh, contact these individuals and collect information from them uh medical information just to understand simple things you know how severe does it get over what period of time does the disease progress from being able to walk to needing a a, a, a walker say and then ending up in a wheelchair does it affect cognitive function truly or is it just in some individuals and and again you know what is the range and the and 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 the age of onset and so on that's all, some very simple questions that we still need to understand better and then also see does that does do the clinical findings uh, correlate in any way with the changes in the gene you know there are many different changes in this gene dars2 which is the gene that's affected dars2 is the name of the gene and the question is uh you know is it, is there any correlation between the genotype meaning the change in the gene and the clinical severity and the clinical uh, course so that we could potentially predict in a newborn or in a child at an early age how this patient might do based on the changes in the gene. And we do not know the answer to that question right now. Nor do we know if the imaging findings, uh, so, you know, this disease primarily usually what happens is that these patients present with neurological symptoms. They end up having an MRI uh, of the brain. And the, when the pictures are taken of the brain, the doctors say, oh, this is a leukodystrophy. And then they work them further up towards this diagnosis. And so the question is, do the changes in the MRI in also in any way predict the disease course and the disease severity? We still do not know the answer to that. So that's one part of the clinical study that we are trying to do is just basically a simple cross-sectional analysis of everybody who's out there to try to understand what is the disease course and severity and where are the correlations. And now we we are hoping to gear towards treatment. So we are on the lab, laboratory side uh, dealing with model systems in cell culture and in, in animals, uh, basically modeling this disease and then starting already to test uh, several compounds and drugs um, in the lab. And, and, and so let's say we find that something works uh, in the lab and we want to do a clinical trial. If a disease is so rare and we don't know what the variability in the disease causes, it's going to be very hard to know if your trial is effective or not. And so we are trying to utilize uh, remote measures um, basically, things that can be done easily without the patient have actually to fly to Baltimore, but have them done at home, so that we can get a sense about disease course in a in a in a in a remote fashion, but also in a quantitative way, as as quantitative as possible. And so, this disease, at least in the childhood form, this this early childhood onset form, seems to primarily affect balance and gait. And we have excellent uh, systems that are already out there and have been utilized for, you know, many other diseases, specifically in adulthood, but some also in childhood, where we can use those those technologies to assess um, to assess these patients in their house or at their home. And so we've started that a few months ago. We're just in the beginning stages. The 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 first step for us was to have some of these patients come to Kennedy Krieger, assess them here and then do these remote assessments and see if the remote assessments actually correlate and, and are representative of the inpatient assessments. And so far, it looks like they are. And so what we're going to do now as a next step is just assess these individuals every six months in their home by sending them out the equipment. They put the equipment on, and we assess them in their in their house. Um, and, and we get the data back here, and then we can analyze it. So the hope is that if we do this for two, three years, the two, three-year time period will provide us enough of data to see what is the rate of progression of this disease so that when we want to do a clinical trial, we can use these same tools and, and, and conduct an experiment where, you know, either a patient 
uh, may get the drug or not get the drug, or maybe even the data that we're collecting now, if it's clean enough, we may be able to use this as an as a untreated control group right now, a so-called historical control, mm-hmm. and then put everybody else uh, going forward on, on, on medication. So that's sort of our hope. You referenced this study back in April. You began it with a, a handful of participants using wearable sensors. What do these devices look like, and, and what data are you collecting with them? So I, I think it might it might be best not to mention any brand name or anything, but I'm just going to elaborate a little bit on the technology. And I'm I'm a medical doctor, so I'm I'm not not very knowledgeable when it comes to the technology itself. But we I'm just a good user of them. And basically, they are similar to Fitbits, uh, but the way they look like they look like wristwatches. Uh, you can put them on. You have you have options of putting the sensor in different ways. You can put two sensors on each on each wrist uh, and then one around the the abdomen or you can put you know two around the wrist and then two around the ankles and based on how you how you do this setup you can measure different kinds of variables so what they do is these these sensors are actigrams and what um uh, so they they basically measure movement in space acceleration deceleration but then there is also a receiver that we send to the patients as well. The receiver is sitting in the same room and receives signal from the sensors and based on that can analyze exactly where the location of each arm and each leg is of this patient. And so by using these, these sensors, we can basically measure how do they walk, how steady are they, what is their walking speed, what is the range of movement in each extremity, how is their balance. And so, the, again, these are key variables that we typically measure in a, in a, in a sensory motor lab. Uh, but we, we, we have done correlations, and it seems that we can use these devices at home and, and get pretty much the same, same results. Um, in addition, we have, a, we have a camera system that goes with the patient in addition to the sensor. The camera is connected to the laptop. Where our, our research staff is basically in direct communication with the patient or with the research subject, telling them exactly what to do every, for every single step. So we guide them through this, so it makes it pretty easy for for the for the subjects who are participating. Basically, we we set them down in uh, it, it might be in their kitchen or it might be in their hallway. You know, we uh, we have them put the electrodes on. We have them basically walk up and down several times, and when they just walk up and down the hallway several times, the sensor measures all these different variables that then we can remotely analyze. What's the potential for using these types of devices in studies of patients? How how might they be able to change the approach to clinical research or the insights we're able to gain? So I think that the issue is that in any rare disorder, we have to think a little outside the box when it comes to uh, outcome measures. And so the Food and Drug Administration, of course, has quite, uh, you know, uh, elaborate guidelines as to what kind of outcome measures are appropriate for, uh, for uh, you know, a neurological disorder. Um, but they also understand that in a severe, you know, very rare disease condition like we are facing here, you know, you can't do what you can do, say, in multiple sclerosis, where you can have thousands of patients come to the hospital and assess them there. So really, this out-of-the-box thinking is necessary there. And there has been, certainly, in the adult neurology uh, population, trials using these sort of remote measures for, for, uh, for more common diseases like Parkinson's disease. Um, and, and so we are, you know, this is an ongoing process. So first we are collecting data, and then once we have the data, we're going to be talking to the Food and Drug Administration to see if they agree with us that 
these measures, if they indeed change over time, are reliable outcome measures that we can do remotely at home. So I think it's going to be a whole change in the game in terms of the way we're going to be doing clinical trials because it will allow us to do it in a in a in a in a in a more efficient way. It's difficult when you have a neurologic disability to travel. You know, aside from costs of traveling aside, it's just very cumbersome and difficult for families. You know, especially in children who are in school, to take them out of a school, fly them over to Baltimore, and so on. Um, so if we can do these things at home, it's it's way more convenient will result in better, we think that it's most likely going to result in better adherence to protocol um, and, and be, you know, basically getting getting actually more reliable measures that actually matter because we are testing the patients in their home environment rather than in an artificial environment and see how they're performing there. So we, we think that it's really a, a, a change in the, in the game here in terms of the way clinical trials can be done. And, um, and I'm hoping that we can utilize this one, this one uh, example here for LBSL, but be able to utilize the same method and apply to many other rare diseases where gait is affected, you know, in children. And so, you know, we work on several of these diseases now. We're using LBSL as an example, but if you see that this is this is uh, a, a methodology that is reliable and is changing over time, uh, the measures change over time, um, then um, then we uh, we will most likely apply that to other diseases. What's the potential for Using these types of devices in studies of patients, how how might they be able to change the approach to clinical research or the insights we're able to gain? So so far, that is that is part of the that is a question number one for us. Obviously, is that we want to make sure that these measures are reliable and valid, and 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 so so far, uh, this is this is still uh, ongoing analysis. But we have collected data from eight subjects uh, in this last few months. Uh, where we have assessed them in the lab uh, or in person. Um, actually, on one occasion, we flew out and met them there because I was there already. <laughs> uh, but done in-person assessments by trained laboratory staff, and then, and then you know, the, the second assessment done at the patient's home. And it looks like it'd be getting essentially identical data. So I think that I'm that uh you know this this has to obviously be still you know published and undergo peer review but based on our preliminary analysis here we think that it is quite valid to utilize these tests and it's also important to point out that when you know again as these measures are happening in a patient's home the individual is not by himself so they are connected directly over video with with one of our trained staff one of the people who knows how to do these assessments here in person so it's actually the same individual assessing them just rather than you know assessing them in person utilizing the video technology and the variables to get the same results do you see these devices having value for the ongoing monitoring of patients over the life of their conditions Potentially, I think people are increasingly becoming more and more interested if they have any sort of disability, you know, how they're doing over time. Um, so I think I think it will be it will be uh, potentially very valuable because that you know once this technology is is more settled in, um, I think that you know you you may be able to basically get similar measures even with cheaper devices in the future. Uh, you no, know, maybe with your phone or a Fitbit kind of device where you know this this is something that patients may be able to monitor continuously and see how they are doing over time. Uh, I think I, I see many patients, especially young adults, when they have a they have a disorder, they really want to sense themselves. How am I doing compared to a year ago? Uh, you know, it's just 
you know, because you may want to do some exercise or do this and that, and you want to see how life events are affecting you in general. So, so I do think that there is going to be interest outside. Uh, I think the way the technology is right now, it does need this expert input and you know this coordination with the with an expert on the other side of the of the line and the video. But I do think that as as these technologies mature more and more and get cheaper, also in the future, that this will actually be something that people will be able to do at home by themselves, um, just to monitor themselves. Are you still recruiting patients for the study? And if so, where can people learn more or contact you? Yeah, absolutely. We are still recruiting patients. Um, we are listed on clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, if they go to clinicaltrials.gov uh, and just type in LBSL, they will see our study. Uh, they can also go through the Kennedy Krieger website. You can find information about the study at the KennedyKrieger.org website. Look under the Research tab. Ali Fatimi, Director of the Division of Neurogenetics at the Mosier Center for Leukodystrophies at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. Ali, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.